Good afternoon. <laughs> um, my name is Scott. Uh, I'm a chaplain in UCD, and I'm also the Young Adults Ministry Coordinator here in Holy Trinity. And it's a uh, quick shout out to them. Filled the pews before anyone else this morning. Very impressed. Whoop. Um, the, uh, and if you are fit into the young adult demographic, and I feel terrible about the name young adults, because it immediately goes, well, guess if you fall out of this range, you're an old adult, um, which just seems like such a terrible thing to say to somebody. Um, but our young adults ministry um, is on Thursday nights. If you want to join us, we meet at 7 o'clock. Um, uh, it ends up being closer to half seven um, for tea, toast, and Bible study, and it's just a great time together here in the side room in the church. Um, and one of my favorite things about those evenings is it's such a different experience to um, uh, my life growing up when I was in youth ministry, because right above us is, um, is a whole group of more mature members of our congregation who play billiards um, and are, for some reason keep dropping the pool cues and it makes me want to go upstairs and be like, would you keep it down up there? We're trying to study the Bible, um, which is very different from how I grew up with uh, old, uh, older people telling me, keep those young people down. Um, it's actually, the shoe is on the other foot now. Um, so we're in a new uh, series called Stepping Out from the Crowd, Lessons from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Rob kicked off our series last week with a brilliant talk, um, looking at this question of what it means for us to step out of the crowd and become who God has called us to be, both as individuals and as a community. And so last week, we looked at, um, in Luke 4, at one of the defining moments in Jesus' ministry, when he reveals who he is um, in the, the synagogue in his hometown. And I'm actually going to read that passage and this week's passage together, because I feel like you need the flow um, of both of them to really get a sense of it. So this is from Luke chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the, prof in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow, a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, except for Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. So, before we figure out what this means to us today, one of the things we have to do is figure out what it would have meant to the people at the time in which this story is located. Who are these people? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their longings? What is their story? 
They're Israelites. They're part of the people of God, and they're living in the promised land, the place that God invited them in order to make them a blessing and a light to the whole world. Light and blessing, however, are not how they would describe their lives. Over the thousand years before this, Israel has been invaded and plundered numerous times. They were divided at one stage into two kingdoms, into two kingdoms, and one was destroyed and the other one was dragged off into exile. The people had since returned and tried to rebuild, but for the last 400 years, God had been silent. They were dominated by one powerful empire after another. And it's at this moment in history when it's Rome that rules them with an iron fist. So these are people who are wounded and hurting. There was supposed to be a light in a dark world, but for them it would have felt more like the little flame that they were holding out against the night has been snuffed out. And so they wait in the cold darkness for dawn to break, for God to open his mouth and speak, to burst into their world and bring rescue and redemption and restoration. So when Jesus reads these verses, he's not just quoting a religious text. He's repeating the promises that they would have whispered to each other in the dark. They would have known these words because they've been clinging to them for hundreds of years. And so they would notice when, as Rob said last week, Jesus finishes the passage from Isaiah early. One of my favorite uh, moments from among one of the dumbest comedies of all time, um, Anchorman, um, is when uh, Veronica Corningstone says to Ron Burgundy, well, when in Rome, and immediately we go, you know, we finish the saying in our head, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And Ron Burgundy goes, yes, when in Rome, and just doesn't know the second half of it. And you realize that we, we, when we use that expression, we actually just use the first half because we assume that you're going to finish the other half in your head. And that's very much what this passage was to the Israelites. They finished it they would have finished this in their head and wondered why Jesus stopped speaking at the point that he did. Here's what it's supposed to sound like from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. To those who are listening, what Jesus read would have sounded incomplete. They would have wanted to say the next line. They would have wanted to, to finish it. They would have finished it in their heads. You can just imagine, like, um, I was trying to think of a really good example of this, right? And, and I could only think of the opposite example, where, do you know when, and this is particularly for people who attend Irish sporting events, um, you know when the crowd is singing the Fields of Athenry, and there's this bit in between lines where somebody might shout out Sinn Féin? <laughs> That's the opposite of this. Like, you're, you're getting this sense of, like, um, of, of the, the vibe that's going on here in terms of, like, when somebody calls that out, it's not just a song. It's like a rebel declaration, you know? You get a sense of, okay, so this is not the place I want to be when our fight breaks out. Um, and it, it's very much the same kind of thing here. Like, there, you can, the building passage would have made people want to stand up at the end and go, to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God where he will come and rescue us from our enemies and destroy those who have oppressed us, where everything that we've had to bear will be taken and put on other people. And there was, that was the sense of the fulfillment of the passage. It wasn't just the promise of one day we will be favored. It was the promise that one day they will get what, they're coming, what is coming to them. They would have wanted to speak the word vengeance, but Jesus puts a full stop 
after favor. And if we're going to understand who we are called to be as a community, this is crucial. We are not a people who long for vengeance. We're a people who long for favor for all. The way that it worked in a first century synagogue is that you would stand when you were doing the reading and then you would sit to deliver your sermon. And it says that Jesus sits and delivers his sermon and it's only nine words long. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's as if he doesn't just give the sermon, he is the sermon. Everything that he has done and is doing is the sermon. It is the thing you are invited to learn from and be transformed by. And some people, they believe what's happening in front of them, what what they're seeing and what he's saying, but some can't because they still see Jesus through the lens of what they know of his story. Some are amazed, it says, but others are asking the question, isn't this Joseph's son? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You remember. Remember, you remember that, you remember that, uh, that girl, that young girl, what was her name? Remember, it was a big story at the time. She, uh, she got pregnant, and she said it was an angel. She said it was God who had made her pregnant, and the angel had told her that this was something to be proud of, not something to be ashamed of. And Joseph, that clown, married her anyway, because that's the story that spreads around small towns. It was only Mary and Joseph who heard the angels. To the rest of the community, it seemed impossible. It seemed like a really good cover story for what was a really bad origin story for people of that day. To these ancient and religious people, lineage and bloodlines matter in a way that wouldn't matter as much to us today. And so Jesus says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, cure yourself. And what that means is, it, it, is you claim coming to have the solution to my problem, but you're the one in our eyes who has a problem. Look at your lineage, look at your story, look at where you came from. You're the one who needs to be fixed, not me. Or at least start with yourself and then come and tell me. They don't believe that the Messiah could have had a questionable origin story despite the fact that word has spread of his incredible ministry and miracles. And I love the fact that it's almost as if Jesus was saying, you didn't believe my mother, so why would I prove myself to you? Instead, he continues on this theme of like vengeance and favor and starts talking about the moments in history when God reaches out and heals the outsider. He says there was a famine all over Israel for three years and six months, but God only sent his prophet to a widow in Lebanon. There were lepers all over Israel, but the only one who was cleansed was from Syria. He's saying to, to, to them and to us, not only is this not about vengeance, it's about favor for everyone. It's not just about rescuing Israel, it's also about rescuing Rome. It's not just about restoring the outsider, the insider, it's about redeeming the outsider. And then suddenly the people who spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth are filled with rage. It's funny how people can love you when you have gracious words for them and then turn on you when you speak graciously of those they hate. And so they chase him up to, the, to a cliff and they try to throw him off and he walks through the crowd. This begins, as you read the Gospels, to become a little bit of a theme. 
Jesus walking through crowds, walking away from them, stepping out of them, walking through them, no matter what they were trying to do. In John 6, we find him doing the same thing, but for different reasons. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We live in a world where the crowd is always trying to take you by force. To bend you to its will, to burden you with its expectations, standards, and obligations. The crowd is fickle, and you never know if they're going to try and kill you or make you king. But the crowd doesn't have the final word on who you are and who you are called to be. This is what I love about Jesus' ability to walk away from the crowd. And this is what I want to see actually unfold in my life and in our communal life together. That we would be willing to walk away from both kind of crowds. The crowds that make us afraid and the crowds whose attention we might crave. I don't talk about this uh, a huge amount in my life. Um, at, at least I don't know if I talk about it from the front before. I've, I've definitely had conversations about it one-on-one. -on -one. But this has really shaped my decision-making process in terms of me figuring out what my calling was supposed to be. About how do I, how do I be, be obedient to the person who God has called me to be? How do I stop letting the voices of the crowd or my need for the crowd direct my journey? A few years ago, before I took on the job in UCD, I was weighing up other possibilities. Um, and the other possibility, the big other possibility was, um, uh, I was in California, um, in, I was in Long Beach in California, and uh, a friend of mine, I was working with him there for three weeks, and he was like, dude, this is, this is unreal. We were working with the, the kind of bearded and tattooed freaks who'd fallen out of like local megachurches um, and didn't know if they, uh, if they had much in the way of a faith left because they were so burned out on like toxic fundamentalist religion. Um, and yet they started coming to this little Anglican church, like our little Anglican church here. And, and they started coming and, and they would come to this traditional service because in coming up to for communion, for the Eucharist, they were like, I don't know if I still believe in God, but I believe this transforms me. I believe that I find so something of the divine here. And so in spite of all my questions and my doubts, this is the place where I want to uh, have that conversation. And so we began to kind of do events together just in these little three weeks, but we had this real sense of building momentum. And then I had to continue my journey speaking in other places. And so, and then eventually I came home. But while I was there, the um, local minister took me to meet with the bishop of LA and they offered me a job planting a young adult church in Long Beach in California. And then we went over and we met their immigration lawyer and I knew that I was serious. Oh, sorry, they knew, I knew that they were serious. And I began to think this is what I'm gonna be called to do in a place where I could wear shorts. <laughs> and I, I came home believing that this is the direction that we were headed and, 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 and that I was going and, and I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what else the future would hold, but this was so exciting and the finances were beginning to come together, the position was coming together, and we were getting ready to pull the trigger on the, um, uh, on the visa application. And uh, conversations emerged here in Dublin and um, it was brought to my attention that a, uh, a job would, uh, the job of chaplain would be coming up in UCD and I should really consider applying for it. And, um, and so I did, and 
suddenly had to face this choice of what do I do? And it's in that moment where you begin to, like, to wonder how much of what I'm thinking and feeling right now is, is the crowd. The first part of, I think, what probably drew me to that journey over there, I mean, obviously you know how the story ends, but what drew me to that story over there was like, how great would it be to, to get away from Ireland? Like that moment where Jesus says, that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. There's definitely something about getting away from people who knew you growing up. <laughs> and there are some people here, Scotty Hill actually, <laughs> has known me. Scotty and I met in the upper room of Avoca Manor um, uh, on a camp when we were 16 or something like that. Um, and, you know, he knows a little bit about my story and probably more than I'm comfortable with. You know, like, there wasn't all, like not, my whole story is not all things that I'd be delighted to tell you about. Um, Jacob Reynolds was principal of IBI when I started there when I was 18. And I am hugely embarrassed if he remembers anything that I said during that whole period of my life. It would just be so nice to arrive fully, you know, fully formed and like ready to go in a new place on the other side of the world where I could, you know, surf in the morning and teach in the evenings. You know, it'd be wonderful. It'd be so good to get away from the people who knew you growing up because that crowd, they'll drag you up to the side of a cliff where as soon as you open up your mouth and you say, you know what, I think God is calling me to do this. That crowd can tend to cannibalize you because they know who you have been and they think that limits who God can make you in the future. And then there's the other part of the job as well is that part of this job was going to be funded by me spending two or three days a week flying around the U.S. and speaking at universities. And, and then they would pay the church directly and then that would fund my ministry to young adults there in California. And so not only would I get a chance to actually do something I loved and cared about in one of the most beautiful places in the world, I would also go and get to speak to thousands of people every week and, and you know, be that guy who's like always flying and always... Like, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was the dream for all the worst parts of me. Because sometimes you also have to walk away from the people who might make you king. Because that's not who you're called to be either. And so I would walk around, I remember walking around UCD when I didn't have a job there. <laughs> it was, um, it's okay, lots of people do it. And <laughs> it's not like it's a primary school. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember sitting down outside the back of the clubhouse bar and I was praying about this. And, uh, and I, I, and I and sometimes in life, I, I, I think I hear God speak, and I'm never 100% sure, but I, I, I need to know how deep the rabbit hole goes. And the only thing I heard God say during that season was, commit to the local. Give yourself to here. Give yourself to the place that needs you. Step away from the crowd, the crowd that has the potential to kill you, the crowd that wants to make you king, because they don't have the final word on who you're called to be and what the limits of your life are, about where you should live, about where you should minister, about what your gifts are, they don't have the final word. To step out of the crowd for us as individuals means to ask ourselves, not, not, what is, where, not is where is gravity taking me, not is where will, I, where will I go if I just keep going in the same direction. Who is God calling me to be? What are my gifts? Where am I placed? Who is God calling me to be? And who is God calling us to be together? I think he's calling us to be people of favor. People who proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to the whole world, to the insider and the outsider, to the one who has been healed and is whole, to the one who is broken and hurting. That's what we're called to proclaim. 
and more than proclaim. It's what we're called to embody. If we can step out of that crowd and let God take us to the place that He's calling us to. Let's pray. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon us and within us. Lord, you have sent us to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to prisoners, and to proclaim the year of your favor according to your spirit that is already at work within us and is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Father, deliver us from the crowd that would seek to kill us and the crowd that would seek to make us king, that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment and open ears to hear your voice drawing us to a different place. Close our eyes to those with whom we compare ourselves. Close our eyes to the criticism and the doubt that can sap life away from us. May this be the year of the Lord's favor in our hometown, in your name.